Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4. So good to have uh, Daniel and Casey with us this morning. Um, we love the Bristols and just remember standing on this stage in December of 2019, the two of them being here, they were just a part of our church. They were part of a, uh, a young marriage class here and living in community with other believers here at the church and, and just felt like God was really stirring in their hearts and led them ultimately to pack up their lives and then move to Indonesia. And it's just cool to see how God's working in them and using them. So he's working in them and through them in some incredible ways to spread the gospel. So we love the Bristols and grateful for them. If you're a, a guest with us uh, or maybe you just haven't been able to, uh, to connect here for a while, A, we're glad you're here. But B, I just want to give you a heads up that we are taking the fall as a church and we are working our way through Peter's letter, his first letter that he wrote, 1 Peter. And so I think it's interesting uh, to think about this letter that we have in our Bible, that the way it was meant to be read is really not conducive to the way that we are preaching it throughout the fall. Here, here's what I mean. Is that in the first century, mid-first century, when this letter was written by Peter, he wrote it to groups of believers who were spread out in five different regions of Asia Minor. And imagine being one of those people that received this letter, and when you read it, you started at the beginning of the letter, right, and you read the whole thing through. I need to probably pause right now. It is 2021. Do we still know what a handwritten letter is? Okay, that's good. But think about it. If you would have received that letter, you open it up, and there were no verses in this letter. There were no sections or breakdowns in the letter. You simply started at the very beginning. You read your way through it. What they did not do was they didn't show up and then read one section and then put it on pause, show up the next Sunday, read another section, put it on pause, show up the next Sunday, read another section. But that's the way that we, we have to preach through this letter of the Bible. I share that because it's really easy in the, in the way that we are working our way through the letter, it's easy to forget what the main point that Peter was making. And his point is simple. His point was that part of an identity of a believer in Christ is that you are now a spiritual exile living in this world that is not your home. Part of your identity, when you became a Christian, part of your identity is you are a spiritual exile living in this world that is no longer your home. This is not your home. That can be discouraging at times. It can be challenging to be a spiritual exile. It is difficult. But what he is pressing to us throughout this letter is simple, that we are to be who we are. We are to be who we are. We are to be spiritual exiles, not finding this world as our home, but longing for our true home, which is heaven. And in this section here that we're about to work our way through, Peter is going to hammer home to his readers and to us today about what Jesus has done in our life that does make us distinct from the world around us. He's going to hammer home. And I will say this, his approach is not one of a fundamentalist preacher who's just going to shout and scream and berate you. And his approach is not passive to where he's going to come alongside of us, pat us on the back and say, hey, if you can kind of get around to being different from the world, that'd be really nice. 
he's going to be right in the middle and challenge us and take us right back to Jesus, who, his work in our life, who makes us distinct from the world around us. So let's work our way through the passage together. Chapter 4, starting out in verse 1 together. 4 verse 1. Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Let's stop here for a moment. There's a couple of interesting things that Peter says to his readers and to us. He says, now, from this moment here, you're to live the rest of the time in the flesh. What is he talking about? He's talking about a, a period of time between when you come to know Jesus, when you give your life to Christ, you become a Christian. And whether that happened like in a, in a moment where you go, I remember the exact time and day when I became a believer. Or if maybe over time you became a believer. But he says, from the time of salvation until you breathe your last breath here on this earth and you transition from this world to eternal glory, to heaven, he says, you're living between salvation and glorification. He says, during this time, as a believer, live intentionally. Specifically, he says, this time that you have in the flesh, live it intentionally. Well, how? He answers that question, the next part of the verse. Live your life intentionally, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What Peter is telling us is that as a believer in Christ, when you come to know Jesus until you breathe your last breath here on this earth, you are no longer living for old passions, passions that you had apart from Christ. Even if you came to know Christ at seven years old, the passions you have before coming to know Christ, you're no longer living for those. Or if you became a believer when you were 67 years old, you're no longer living for those human passions that you had prior to meeting Jesus. He says, now you have a new approach to life. You have a new purpose behind life, and that is simply to will or live for the will of God. Do you see that? The world lives for human passions. A believer in Christ is living for one who is greater than us, a glory that is far better than us, a light that shines brighter than us in this world, that we are living for Christ now, meaning that as a believer, the more you grow in Christ, the more you grow in separation from this world that is not your home. So you hear that preached often. We're to be separate, right? set apart as believers from this world, what does that mean? We'll, we'll put it up on the screen for you, a definition of just being separate. When the Bible talks about being separate, it means that you now belong to Christ. You're no longer common, common to this world. Your life in Christ is uncommon. You're no longer without purpose. You have purpose now in your life in Christ. And you're simply no longer of this world. 
And church, when you read your Bible, you see this is a theme throughout the scriptures of being set apart from this broken world. We studied this passage a few weeks ago where Peter talks about it. There in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he said, remember this, he said, but you are a chosen race, believers. You're a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Now you are a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, there's the set apart, into his marvelous light. Believer, you've been called out of darkness, set apart from darkness. Now you've been brought into the marvelous light of Christ. Well, this is not just a Peter thing that Peter wrote about in the New Testament. Jesus had something to say about this as well. Remember he said in John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In other words, because the world opposes Jesus, they will oppose you as well. So just Peter and Jesus had something to say about this, right? No, the Apostle Paul, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's Christ in me now. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Set apart. Another one, Romans 12, 1 through 2. Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, also translated there, set apart, your body set apart, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Scriptures say that when you become a believer in Christ, you are now... In this time, you're living in this time before you go to your true home of heaven, you are set apart from this world. Over and over again, what Jesus does in your life, you're set apart. Therefore, I think our prayer should simply be, Lord, set our lives apart for you, God. Set our, part, our lives apart for you. Lord, set our lives apart for your service. Lord, set our lives apart for your glory, not our own glory. Lord, set our lives apart for you today and that we plead with God, Lord, we don't want to live like the rest of this world because this world is broken. There's no hope in this broken world. This world is confused. It's messed up. And before we become really self-righteous and go, yeah, yeah, the world, the world, let's remember that's what we were apart from Christ. Hopeless broken, confused, messed up. Praise God for the gospel. Through the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, his grace and his grace alone, 
You are now changed. Where you once were hopeless, but now you have hope. You once were living in the darkness, now you're living in the marvelous light of Christ. Never said your life is perfect. Never said you don't struggle with sin. We all struggle with it, this side of heaven. But saying now there's something different within us, and his name is Jesus. And so we cry, Lord, give us agendas. Give us your agenda. Give us new desires, Lord. Give us new purposes and goals in this life because you give us a joy that the world doesn't have. You give us something to belong to, your kingdom that the world does not have. Lord, separate us for you. That's what Peter is saying here. And now, Peter gets really practical about how we separate ourselves from the world around us. So let's jump into this, starting out verses 3 and 4. We know we're separated, but how do we do this? He gets really practical. Verse 3 and 4, he says, For the time that, that is past suffices, which, by the way, is Peter's way of saying, the time that you had apart from Christ, that's past. You're walking apart from Christ. It's It's over. It's come to completion. And so you're living in a way of doing what the Gentiles want to do, which was his way of saying what the world wants to do. He said That's time, that time is over now as a believer. And then he gives specific examples of the way the world lives, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, just to name a few. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So he says, look, the world around us gives in to sensuality, meaning their lives, their bodies are overwhelmed by desires and desires, human desires, human passions dictate the way that they live their life. He also addresses sexual sin. He also addresses the abuse of alcohol. He addresses idolatry when we take good things and we make them into God things as our meaning and hope in life. You know, it's really interesting because you get into the context of, of the first century and the time in which Peter was writing this letter. He was writing it again to believers who were living underneath the rule of the Roman government. And in Greco-Roman culture, A, it was very different from 2021 East Texas, needless to say. But in some ways, it was the old Wild West before the old Wild West was the old Wild West. Especially when it came to the sexual ethic. It was very commonplace in a Greco-Roman culture for men to have multiple sexual partners. It was very commonplace as well for there to be prostitution that took place within temple worship. It was a messed up, broken culture. And so one of the many different ways believers in the first century, mid-first century, one of the many ways that believers were different and distinct from the world around them 
was that they were committed to their spouse sexually. They, they, they were committed to living in sexual purity. I don't know if they were giving out rings or what during that time. I don't know. Or bands to remind them. But they were committed to saying, look, our life is, in Christ is different. Here's the really interesting thing, though. Sexual immorality, abuse of alcohol, idolatry, again, turning good things into God things, not much has changed over the last, oh, let's just say 2,000 years. Right? I mean, you and I, as believers, let's, let's just have honest talk now. As believers, we fight a daily battle to where sexual immorality is easily accessible in the palm of our hand, our phone. And I'm not just talking to men. Because what all the studies show nowadays is that pornography is equally is a struggle for men as it is for women. For women as it is for men. So we have to think through, as believers, how do we fight that? It's real. When it comes to relationships and sexual morality, you have to think through Culture says, hey, shouldn't you test drive it before you buy it? Right? That's how we do cars, so that's how we should do relationships, right? Maybe you should test drive it before you actually get married. And I would say, look, before you're ready to give the benefits of marriage to your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you better be ready to give the commitment of marriage to them. That's distinct from the world around us. It honors your boyfriend, it honors your girlfriend, it honors God above all. Or when it comes to social life, social drinking, you may have some freedom there, but at the same time, we have to really think through, are we abusing our freedoms at the cost of losing our distinctiveness and culture? Or are we simply just fading into all that culture does around us? Never said alcohol was bad. Just saying how we leverage that and our freedoms, we really have to think through. Are we killing our, our distinctiveness in Christ? All that to be said, Peter is, is proclaiming to us, to those believers in the first century and us today, of, you have a distinctiveness. You're set apart from this world. Look at what the world gives themselves into. And this was only a small list, by the way. But how do we live our lives in a way that truly is distinct? And did you notice there the response of the world when they see our distinctiveness? Did you notice what Peter said? With respect to this, in verse 4, with respect to this, they are, what do you say? surprised when you don't partake in this they're surprised hey Christian wouldn't you love for your non-believing friends your non-believing neighbors your non-believing co-workers your non-believing roommate wouldn't you love for them to look at your life and to say there's something really different about that person and it's more than the fact that they go to church there's something different in them 
And I'm surprised by what's different in them. So here's the question, I believe, for us. What makes us distinct? What makes us as believers distinct from the world around us to the degree that they would look at our lives and say, wow, that's surprising. So I'll illustrate it in a light, lighthearted way this morning. If you've been around our church for a while, you probably have heard this story, okay? So you don't need to email me tomorrow saying, hey, you shared that one like four years ago. I, I did. If you're new to our church, this is new to you. So several years ago, um, I had a meeting with three people from a East Texas ministry. This is going to date the story a little bit. We were meeting at Twisted Root. Some of you guys are like, we had a twist. Yeah, we had a Twisted Root here, okay? Rest in peace, Twisted Root. No longer with us. So I'm meeting them at Twisted Root. I walk in. I know out of the three people I'm meeting with, I know one person. So I walk up, introduce myself to the other two. And um, so we talk for just a few minutes, kind of that awkward just talking and and, um, getting to know one another. And then I I said, hey, if you'll excuse me, I I need to run uh, to the restroom here. So I'm walking to the restroom at Twisted Root. If you remember... They had no signage for restrooms at Twisted Root. They just had neon lights. I'd walked into, (laughs) you know where this is going. I'd walked into the restaurant. I'd just taken a phone call from somebody, and and that still was on my mind. And so I'm contemplating that phone call. I'm walking to the restroom, and for whatever reason, I don't know why, I didn't really take note. I just went left. So I went left right into the restroom. And I'm going to be really honest with you. I walked in the restroom, I stopped right in the middle of the restroom, and my first thought was, man, these are really interesting restrooms here at Twisted Root. Like, it should have dawned on me, Danny, you're in the ladies' restroom. And I should have turned, like any logical human being, and just walked out. I froze. Instead of walking out, I ran straight to a stall. (laughs) True story, I run into the stall, I lock it, and I realize I'm in the women's restroom right now, And I realize there's somebody in the stall next to me. So I get a little more awkward. I look down. I notice that this lady has sandals on. And I realize those are the very sandals of one of the two people I'm about to meet with that I don't know. If you want to check out other churches in Tyler, it would totally be great at this point and understandable. So now I have to devise a plan. How do I get out of here? So I just decided the best route was three, two, one. I open the stall door. I bolt out. I go straight. If you were standing in Twisted Root, you would have seen this guy come right out of the women's restroom, straight into the guy's restroom fast. I go in the men's restroom. I'm like, what just happened? That group of three people still asked me to come speak to their ministry. I don't know why. And they forever know me as the guy that went into the women's restroom. That is my distinction with them. Here's my point. Here's my point. What do we want to be distinct about as believers? What what do we want to be known for? What makes us distinct? Here is my danger moment for you. Here's my concern for us as as believers today. We know that we're set apart. We know that we should be distinct. And what we tend to default to is, oh, you know what? I'll come up with what I think 
means to be distinct and how I should be distinct. Here's the problem with that. You and I, the Bible says, we are foolish in our own foolishness. That's not encouragement, by the way. So are we going to rely upon us and our interpretation of what makes us distinct and how we should be distinct? Or are we going to allow the Bible to dictate, to challenge us, and to tell us specifically how to be distinct? Because if we default to allowing us to determine ways that we should be distinct, it oftentimes leads to really goofy theology and bad theology, to be honest with you. And a really messed up, broken witness. Church, I'm going to side with the Bible on this one. Not my limited understanding and interpretation. And here's the cool thing about this passage. The next part gives us how to biblically be distinct and set apart from this world that is not our home. So let's go. Verse 7. Let's let the Bible determine this, not ourselves. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Time is limited for us, believers. Therefore, first distinction, be self-controlled. That's pretty simple, right? How many truly self-controlled people do you know? How many self-controlled Christians do you know? What does it mean to be self-controlled? When we talk about being self-controlled, and the Bible actually talks about being self-controlled, it's talking about a Jesus-reliant declaration of war on both our sin and Satan's temptations. Anybody feel like right now Satan is just coming after you with temptation after temptation after temptation? Well, the solution in being self-controlled is not, hey man, just work harder. The solution here is, Jesus reliant. It's reliant upon the power of Jesus that he does supply to you, though, to declare that I'm in a battle right now against my sin and temptation. That's distinct from the world around us. That's uncommon to see somebody who is relying upon Jesus day in and day out to battle their own sin and Satan's temptations. Number one distinction being self-controlled. Number two, and being sober-minded. Being sober-minded. What is the Bible talking about when it talks about being sober-minded then? It is seeing life with clarity while living in a broken world. It's seeing life through the lens of Jesus, gospel lens in this broken world. Think about what is the opposite of being sober? He's like, uh, drunk maybe? Being drunk. And when a person is drunk, are they seeing with clarity? Are they thinking with clarity? No. It's skewed. It's cloudy. So it's really intentional, I think, for Peter to say, be sober-minded living in this world because when you put on a gospel lens, you put on a lens to see things through the lens of Jesus, then you see life with clarity in this broken world. He says, you want to be distinct, be, be self-controlled, be sober-minded. 
Thirdly, verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Again, keep above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. What does he mean? I believe this is what he's talking about. Keep modeling the love of Jesus to your fellow broken neighbors and loved ones. He's saying to me, Danny, keep modeling the love of Jesus to the people that I, I'm around on a daily basis or even the stranger that enters into my life. Keyword broken neighbors, broken loved ones, because we live in a broken world. And you think about this, he said, love covers a multitude of what? And who covered a multitude of sins? Jesus did on the cross. That's why I say, he's saying here, model the love of Christ. Model, lay your life down for your broken neighbor, broken friend, broken loved one, your broken roommate, broken boss, your broken stranger that you encounter. He gives another one here. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another and grumble on social media. Wait, that's not what your Bible says? He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Without grumbling. This is really interesting here because I believe what Peter is saying is simply open up your home. Open up your dorm room. Open up your apartment. Be hospitable. Open up your lives. Take a risk. It's inconvenient for you, but do it with joy. So open up your home. Open up your apartment. Open up your dorm room. Take a risk. Inconvenience yourself and do it joyfully. You know what I've learned is that hospitality, hospitality tends to come natural to some people. Like some of you are varsity when it comes to hospitality. And some of us, us, pastor, Eighth grade C team at best. <laughs> at best. It doesn't come natural to me. And here's, here's my problem. It doesn't come natural to me, and I don't like hospitality because it, inconvenience, it will inconvenience my life. Hospitality and opening up your home and your life typically doesn't operate between the hours of 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. It typically comes at the most inconvenient time for you and that is the wrestling match that I have. Yet I read this right here. And he says, let it inconvenience you. Because you do it without grumbling. Do it joyfully. And then he caps it off. 10 and 11. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to what? Help me out. Use it to what? Serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one 
who serves at, by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says, serve one another. You've been given a spiritual gift. Leverage that. Be a good steward of it. Serve others. Serve others. What does this mean? We'll put it up on the screen here. It means that we are to steward our spiritual gifts to meet each other's needs. So be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. That makes you distinct from the world around you. Love one another earnestly. Model the love of Jesus. It makes us distinct from the world around us. Fourthly, show hospitality and do so without grumbling. It will inconvenience your life. When you open up your home, your apartment, your dorm room, do it joyfully. And lastly, use the gifts that God has given you. Use your spiritual gifts to come alongside people. Serve them sacrificially. Here's the thing that has just pierced my heart throughout this week in the study of this passage. As I've studied it, as I've prayed through it, the thing that keeps coming back to my heart and my mind and my life here about this passage is the fact that we hear self-controlled, we hear sober-minded, we hear loving others, we hear hospitality and serving. We're like, oh, yeah, 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 I got those things. Those things are pretty common. You know what's really interesting to me? Over the last 2,000 years, the last 2,000 years, you know what's still uncommon in this world? Being self-controlled, being sober-minded, loving one another, showing hospitality, and serving others. It is still, there are still qualities and marks of distinction from the world around us. My, how things don't change. And they all point the world around us to Jesus. Hopefully to the degree, hopefully to the degree that the world around us is surprised by how we serve and love and open up our homes and see life clearly and are reliant upon Jesus day in, day out in the battles with our flesh and our sin and against the temptations of Satan. May we grow in those areas, church. And may we not try to define on our own, oh, these are the areas I need to be distinct. That's gonna lead us to goofy, weird messed up theology that a lot of times is unbiblical. Give me the Bible. Give me the Bible. Give me a Christian who says, I want to biblically be distinct. This is what God's called me to. Let's pray, church. Such a great passage. And I'd love to give you some time to pray, some time to spend with the Lord. Maybe it's a time of, of asking him to grow you in one of these five areas of the distinction. Maybe it's a time of, of confession to him. Simply confess. Maybe it's a time of repentance, turning away from sin and turning to the things of God. Or maybe for you right now, it's a time of absolute surrender of your life to Christ. You're saying, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe in what you did on my behalf on the cross. I've been living for this world. I want to give my life to you. I'll spend some time with him, and the band will lead us out in a final song in a moment.